that we may bring honor to your name through all we say and do and think. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As you know, we are nearing the end of the book of Isaiah, and in these final chapters of the book, we find fulfillment of the promises, of many of the promises that are made throughout the book, and in fact, we find fulfillment of the promises that God makes throughout all of the ages in the last two chapters. The last two chapters, chapter 65 and 66, are this culmination that show this incredible fulfillment of these various promises. Seeing is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the event, the era that history is methodically, consistently marching towards, where God will display his right to rule. Now, of course, God already has the right to rule. He's the sovereign. He has the right to rule, although Today, he allows an enemy to rule. He allows a usurper to rule his creation. Because you remember when Adam sinned, he handed over the rulership of this world to the devil. That's what Jesus said. When, uh, in, in, the, in the Gospels, Jesus describes the devil as the ruler of this world. Ruler, little r, not capital R. God, of course, is sovereign, has always been sovereign, and will always be sovereign. But while the usurper, the enemy, rules the usurper brings in the characteristics of who he is. The devil is deceptive and conniving and murderous. And that's why the kingdom of the devil, which is how the world is characterized, because we live in the devil's world, once Adam, the least rulership to the devil, when Adam sinned, What happens is the devil injects into this creation, into the world, all of the characteristics that are the devil. Death, pain, suffering, grief, illness, fear, distrust, conflict, and violence. And so what we see in the final chapters of the book, chapters 65 and 66, is we see a kingdom that is characterized by everything that the current kingdom is not characterized by. We see the kingdom of God described in the final chapters, a kingdom of life and health. We just saw last time, or the last couple of Sundays, these incredible promises of long life. That means incredible health, where people will live for centuries, not for 50 years or 80 years like today, but for centuries upon centuries upon centuries, because God's kingdom is characterized by life, and health, and peace, and prosperity, and righteousness, and justice, and blessing, and security. This is what we're getting a picture of, just a brief, brief glimpse of as we finish out the book. So let's read our, the, the passage for today, which is just two verses. It's Isaiah chapter 65, verses 24 and 25. Let me just read them both, and then we'll drill down into the details of these passages of the of the text of these two verses Isaiah 65 verse 24 reads like this it will also come to pass that before they call God says I will answer and while they are still speaking I will hear verse 25 the wolf and the lamb will graze together and the lion will eat straw like the ox and dust will be the serpent's food they will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain says Yahweh. 
Here we get these two beautiful promises, beautiful blessings of the kingdom. First, intimacy, great intimacy between God and his people. And second, we see peace and security and stability within and among his creation. As we saw last time, the prophet, the prophet Isaiah, when he sees the kingdom, he doesn't distinguish between the different parts of the kingdom. Right? He doesn't distinguish between the thousand-year reign, first part of the kingdom, and the eternal forever, 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 always part of the kingdom, eternity. He doesn't distinguish between those two. He's not like the Apostle John in Revelation 20, 21 and 22, right? As we studied last time, Revelation 20, of the kingdom, that's what reference specific time in one chapter. John sees the kingdom with the different parts, distinguishing the different parts, first as the thousand-year reign, and then the eternal aspect of the kingdom, Revelation 21 and 22. Isaiah doesn't see it that way. It's not that Isaiah misunderstands. It's just God doesn't reveal it to Isaiah or to Habakkuk or to Jeremiah reveal those aspects of the kingdom in the Old Testament. He waits to reveal it to you and to me. Church age believers. Revelation that sometimes we take far too granted. The prophets didn't understand it. Isaiah just sees it as the kingdom and he doesn't see the divisions within the kingdom. And so this is the picture that we're getting here at the end of the book. Let's look at 20, verse 24 in a little more detail. God says, It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are speaking, I will... There's an assumption that is baked in the verse. There's an assumption that this verse stands on. Look at the verse again. What's the assumption? Right. The assumption is that we're going to pray. Go figure. The assumption is that we will pray to God. An incredible, incredible privilege that we can call on God. We need to spend time on the concept of prayer because I fear sometimes that we as Christians don't fully wrap our brains around the significance of prayer and around the hindrance the many, many hindrances that are associated with our prayer life. If we don't fully understand prayer, then we will not fully appreciate the great blessing of our spirit. It is the given to us by the God of the universe to allow us to communicate with Him. Do you all have an audio? Sure. No worries. Prayer is the privilege that God has given to us, that the God of the universe has given to us, to be able to communicate with Him whenever we want, immediately, intimately. Whenever we want to communicate with the King of the universe, He gives us that great privilege. And I fear that we take the privilege 
far too lightly. We can communicate privately, right? You're going to go have a meeting with a governor of Texas, with a lieutenant governor of Texas, with a president, with a senator. You're not going to meet with them privately. The chief of staff is going to be there, unless you're a very, very, very important person, or maybe you're a mega donor, right? Maybe you get a private audience with the lieutenant governor or the governor or a president or a senator if you're very, very unique or the king of England if you're very special. But most likely, you will never get a private audience with any of them because they just don't have time for you and they don't have time for me. God says, I have time for you always. You have a private, intimate, immediate audience with me anytime, always. And so this is the concept of prayer that sometimes we take casually. There are many, many hindrances to prayer, to our prayer lives. There are many reasons why God does not answer your prayers. Let's look at them. We're going to see at least ten. Hindrance number one, it's because you don't confess your sins in detail. Let me just introduce you to these ten. Hindrance to prayer number two, it's a failure of repentance. It's perpetual carnality. Hindrance number three, having a life that is not characterized by righteousness. Number four, not praying in faith. In other words, not believing what you're asking for. Number five, not having meaningful prayer. Just rote meaningless repetition in your words, in your thoughts to God. Number, f- number six, not praying fervently. Number seven, not praying consistently. Number eight, not praying according to God's will. Number nine, not praying in humility. And number ten, not loving God. These are hindrances to prayer that will be non-existent in the kingdom. Because in the kingdom, all of these will be gone. All of these things that make your prayers go up to the ceiling, go back to the floor and never make their way above the ceiling, they're going to be gone in God's eternal kingdom. Let's look at each one of these hindrances. Failure to confess our sins. Psalm 66, verse 18 reads like this. If I regard wickedness in my heart, iniquity is how some translations translate it, how some Bibles translate it. If I regard wickedness or iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Unconfessed sin is a hindrance in our prayer lives. And more than that, unconfessed sin distances us from God. It separates us from God. Isaiah 59, verse 2, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He does not hear. This is separation of fellowship, not of relationship, right? Your salvation is not dependent on you. Don't flatter yourself. You can't lose your salvation because your salvation was never a product from you in the first place. Your salvation is a product of God. Salvation is by grace through faith. It's true, you exercised faith. He used your faith to save you. But He saves you, not you. And therefore, the salvation you have is dependent on His power, not on yours. So the separation that we're talking about here for sin is a child of God. A child of God 
who walks away from God, who distances herself, himself from God, who is separated from God in their walk, not in their position, because positionally you're righteous, having been declared righteous, but your experience, experientially, you're walking as if you're an unbeliever. They can't tell the difference between you and an unbeliever. The way you speak, the way you think, the way you act, even though you're a child of God. And so God, the sin, this perpetual carnality, distances you, separates you from your God, from your real identity, because you've been redeemed, and yet you act as if you were not. And so separation because of sin, because of unconfessed sin, creates this distance between us and God, and it requires us to be washed by the one and only, by the only one who is holy. And so 1 John 1, 9, as we've seen many times before, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Confession is an acknowledgement of wrongdoing. It's agreeing with God as to that which He already knows. You're not telling God anything he doesn't already know when you confess your sins. He's having you acknowledge that which you did wrong. It's not that God says, oh, thank you for telling me that. I didn't realize that. No, he always knew it. He knew it from eternity past. It's just he's having you acknowledge it. Remember what he said to Adam. Adam, where are you? After Adam ate from the fruit, Adam is hiding in the bushes, having covered up his loins with leaves, A minute before Adam and Eve sinned, they were naked and they were not ashamed. And immediately after they sinned, we got to cover ourselves up and hide in the bushes. And so God says, Adam, where are you? God knows where Adam is. But he's asking the question to Adam so that Adam will recognize and acknowledge his wrongdoing. That's what confession of sin is. It's God having us acknowledge our wrongdoing and then God removes the guilt. There may still be consequences for sin. Our decisions have consequences. Kind of like elections have consequences. We know that well. Decisions, sin has consequences. So just because God forgives you doesn't mean that your sin had no consequences. Confession of sin restores us to fellowship. But if we want our prayer life to thrive, we also need to take sin seriously. And run from it. Don't take the approach, you know what, I really love that sin, so I think I'm just going to do it and I'll confess it later. That is an absolute abomination. That is an absolute disrespect for the Lord and for the great promises of forgiveness that He gives you. And so the next hindrance to prayer that we're going to talk about is failure to repent of sin, perpetual carnality proverbs 28 9 he who turns away his ear from listening to the law even his prayer is an abomination abomination there is the hebrew word to'eva it's the same word that is used in the law to describe sexual sins like incest it says incest is an abomination a to'eva before god It says bestiality is a to'eva before God. It says homosexuality is a to'eva before God. That's what the law says. And then God says, your prayer is an abomination to me. 
Don't come to me with your abomination. That is on the same par. You say, well, look, I don't do any of those sexual sins. But you come to God with this abomination. It's not one of those, but it's this other type of abomination. Where you come to him with your prayer and you have these other sins that you just love. I got my pet sins over here. I love them. They're mine. I feed on them. I keep them secret. No one knows. Right? The sin that's secret here is an open scandal in heaven. As Lewis Perry Chafer used to say. The founder of Dallas Seminary. Right? You have these secret pet sins that you feed and you nourish and you nurse. And then you go to God and you ask God, who's at war with sin, God, I ask this favor from you. I want, I want you to give me favor. Talk about insolence and temerity. To go to God, who's at war with sin, and at the same time, you nurse your own pet sins you love them and yet you go to him and ask him to grant your requests i'm not saying that we're sinless no sinlessness and perfection doesn't exist this side of heaven but we should sin less and so we should capture our sin when it's a mere thought that's when you confess it and that's when you repent repent means you turn from it repent means you change your mind Failure to repent and perpetual carnality is a hindrance to sin. Jesus spoke of believers' repentance when he addressed the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2.5 where he says, Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Jesus demands that we Repentance is the Greek word metanoeo, which means to change your mind, to turn about, to turn away. Jesus demands, he's talking to believers there. These are Christians. And he demands that we turn from our sin. Our refusal to do so brings not only divine discipline, but it brings hindrance to prayer. Jesus said this to the church at Laodicea, Revelation 3.19, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Which is to say, guard your thoughts. It's your thoughts that are the problem. It's my thoughts that are the problem. Jesus said that the sin comes from our heart. We're not going to be sinless this side of heaven. But when the thought comes to you, you're like, oh man, that is sweet. Yeah, that's when you know you're sinning and that's where you cut it off. That's where you confess the sin and you ask God to empower you to run from even the thoughts that is so precious to you, the sinful thought, I mean. Then we get to the next hindrance of prayer, which is a life that is not characterized by righteousness. Psalm 24 verse 3 says, Yahweh is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Psalm 34, verse 15 and 16, the eyes of Yahweh are toward the righteous and His ears are open to their cry. The face of Yahweh is against evildoers. James five sixteen. the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. God responds to the righteous. Does the righteous mean that you're sinless? No. Does it mean that you're perfect? No. But it means that you seek Him. 
It means that you follow Him. It means that you trust Him. It means that you worship Him. It means that you confess your sins when you sin, even as a thought. It means that you run from your sins. And even when you go back like the pig to the mud, like we all do, and you go back, you go back. You confess sin and you ask God to empower you. Being righteous means following the Lord, trusting Him, obeying Him, worshiping Him, seeking His glory, and being filled by the Spirit. It doesn't mean perfection because no one is perfect. The Christian that comes along and says, I don't sin, your response should be, you're sinning right now by lying to me because we do sin. I'm not condoning it. I'm saying we need to recognize it. We need to see the enemy. We've seen the enemy, and it is us. We need to recognize our brokenness. The first step to, recognize, to, to solving a problem is recognizing that you have a problem. Right? Failure to have a life. Prayers. The next hindrance is not faith, not belief. In you. Hebrews 11.6 And without faith, it is kind of difficult to please Him. Without faith, sometimes it's tough to please Him. Am I reading that wrong? Without faith, it is impossible to please Him, to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Trust in God, which is to say faith, is a prerequisite for the spiritual life. Unbelief is always the root of our disconnect with God. Lack of faith is a hindrance to your prayers. James 1, 6 says this, But he must ask in faith, without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything. Foolish to pray to him, while at the same time doubting him. Can you imagine? Right? You're praying to God, asking, making this petition and that petition, at the same time doubting that he will grant the petition. Go do something else. I mean, what are you doing? I'm praying, God, that you will grant me this petition, but I don't believe that you're going to grant the petition. Talk about a disconnect. Hindrance, one of the hindrances, great hindrances in prayer is failing to believe, failing to trust Him, failing to come to Him in faith. Mark eleven twenty three reads like this. This is Jesus speaking. Truly I say to you, whenever you see truly I say It will be great. Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be you. So what he's saying is, if you want a $20 million house in Beverly Hills or a candy apple red Lamborghini, you just need to pray and believe it. God, I believe that you're going to give me a 10,000-square-foot house. I believe it. I believe it. I mean, there are people in Christianity that say this. I believe 
that you're going to give me what I want, when I want it, how I want it. And they say, look, the reason you have cancer, the reason you have diabetes, is because you don't believe the prayer that you're making. The reason you don't have health, wealth, and prosperity is because you don't have enough faith. Well, maybe God lets you have cancer because through the cancer, you're going to bring glory to his name. Like the blind man in the Gospels who is made blind, not because his parents sinned or because he sinned, but because through it, he would bring glory to the name of Jesus and Jesus would heal him and thereby bringing glory to the name of the Father. No, that's a lie when the person says, if you just have enough faith, then you'll be healthy, wealthy, and prosperity and prosperous. Jesus isn't saying, if you just pray hard enough, and if you just believe what you pray, then you can have whatever you want, whenever you want it, and however you want it, and God will give it to you. That's not what he's saying. Jesus is using a figure of speech. This is a hyperbole. And a hyperbole is an exaggeration that everybody knows is an exaggeration. Right? You use an exaggeration... And the person that you're giving the exaggeration to knows that you're exaggerating. You're exaggerating to make a point. You're exaggerating to present a message. And the message that Jesus is presenting in Mark 11, the point that he's making is that nothing is impossible with God. That doesn't mean that God's going to give you what you ask. Right? Some people say, I've been asking for this from God. And I haven't had it. He's just not there. Or some people say, I asked for this from God, I got it, so now I'm good. Don't call me God, I'll call you. I'm good. I got what I wanted, now I'm going to put God back in my pocket, and when I need something again, I'm going to pull him out, and I'm going to pray to him. That's what you do with an idol. Don't treat God as if he is an idol. You go to God, you make the prayer, you believe that he is ready, willing, and able to grant the request. Nothing is impossible with God. Don't think that it's impossible with God, because nothing is. But there's another requirement for your prayer. It may not be God's will that you have a candy apple red Lamborghini. The requirement that is necessary is that it be consistent with God's will. And you can't know God's will unless you know his word. We'll get to the will of God in a moment. That's the other element that, that is baked into Jesus' message here in Mark 11. Nothing is impossible. God, trust God that he will grant you request. But also the request needs to be consistent with the will of God, and we will see that in a very clear way through the Apostle Paul in a few moments. The next hindrance to prayer is not making a meaning, meaningful prayer request. Isaiah 29, verse 13 then Yahweh said, because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Therefore, the wisdom of their wise men will perish. There's nothing wrong with repeating prayers. Repeating the prayer over and over. There's nothing wrong with that. What God is condemning here is a meaningless prayer. Sometimes pray, people pray just through rote, through tradition, mindless repetition. Uh, 
I mean, that's kind of how we come to God. It's just kind of just repetition, repetition, mindless. It's okay to repeat the same prayer, but if you're going to stand before the governor or the president, this president, the prior president, any president, any governor, and you're going to make a request to this position of power, to this person of power, you're going to come with precision. Right? You're going to come with a meaningful request, not just this kind of mindless repetition, which is what God is condemning here. If we respect God, if we to use the phrase that has become meaningless in our culture that used to mean something. It used to mean something when we were a culture that respected God. The phrase is, if we fear God. Fearing the Lord. Remember, people used to say, he's a God-fearing man. She's a God-fearing woman. We don't use that phrase anymore because it's meaningless to us. We don't know what it means. But if we fear God, then when you go to him, your request, your communication with him is going to be meaningful. It's not just going to be some kind of mindless repetition. Matthew 6, 7, there Jesus said, and when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition. Meaningless. As the Gentiles do. The context there, he's using Gentiles with respect to unbelievers. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Make a meaningful request to God. Because if you don't, it hinders your prayer because you're disrespecting him. Just going with some kind of meaningless tradition or wrote the next hindrance to prayer is not praying fervently luke 22 verse 44 and being in agony he the he there is jesus was praying fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground this is the night before he is to be crucified he is in the garden of gethsemane and he is praying fervently he's praying i don't want to pay for your sins i don't want to pay for alex's sins father Make it so I don't have to pay for their sins. Make it so I don't have to go to the cross. What is this prayer? To be specific, it is, Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. What's the cup? The cup is the full, bright, unbridled wrath of God. And God says, no, you drink the cup. You bear the full wrath that is due the rest of humanity. You bear it. Now, of course, Jesus is fully God, fully man. And so, as God, he's omniscient. But here the focus in Luke 22 is on the humanity of Jesus. And Jesus is making this prayer. And the Father denies his prayer. Denies it. And instead the Father sends an angel to strengthen him. You can read about that in Luke 22. To strengthen him, to empower him to do the most important task ever by any human being. Remember, Jesus is a man, fully human. And he died, he bore our sins in his own body because he had to die as a man. And so what we see here is fervent prayer. You don't see the prayer granted, at least not granted in the way Jesus asked for it. But granted nonetheless, and of course, Jesus ended his prayer, but not my will, but thy will be done. Ephesians 6.18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. The Greek word there for petition is the asis which doesn't mean just some kind of rote request, some minor request. The asis means an urgent request, a plea. Look at Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. We don't use the word supplication. When was the last time you went to somebody and said, here's my supplication for you? We don't use that word. 
That's an old English word. But if you drill down to the Greek, it's the same word as Ephesians 6.18. It's the same word as petition, petition and supplication are the same word in the Greek. The asis, an urgent request, a plea. Here's the deal. The reason you don't make urgent requests to God, the reason you don't make pleas to God, the reason you don't beg God is because you're too proud. And I'm too proud. The reason you don't pour your heart out to God is because you're too proud. It's because you have been taught. You've been trained by the spirit of the age. You've been conditioned that you're to be independent. Or to you to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You've been conditioned that your faith is a crutch. I mean, that's what my atheist friends say. I got a good atheist friend who's a, well, I meant to say this, a good friend. He's a lawyer and he's an atheist. Great guy. I really like him. But my friend's going to hell. As much as I've given him the gospel, he's going to hell. And he views Christianity, he views faith as a crutch. If you need that crutch, good for you. If, if that's what you need to get through life, good for you. Because for him, life is the end. For him, this is as good as it gets. But for us, this is as bad as it gets. And the best is yet to come. And so we've been conditioned by a culture that teaches us that our faith is a crutch. And so we've been taught to not go to God and bear our soul. You're not telling him anything he doesn't already know. And so we come to God not in supplication, not in petition, not in a, with a plea, with an urgent plea or an urgent request because we've been deceived. We've been duped by a culture that has taught us to be self-sufficient when it comes to faith. I'm all in favor of being self-sufficient when it comes to being a citizen of a country. But we're talking about something that is beyond the nations. We're talking about something that is for the ages. You're wrong. You're wrong. Repent. You do need God. You do need Him. And your prayers should reflect that. Another hindrance to our prayers is not praying always, not praying consistently. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. This is an imperative in the Greek, which is to say it's a do it. It's a command in the Greek. If you're not, do it. Ephesians 6.18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. This doesn't mean that you pray every second of every minute of every hour of every day. You don't have to set your alarm for 1 o'clock in the morning or 2 o'clock in the morning to wake up to pray and then go back to sleep as if you could do that. I used to be able to do that. I can't do that anymore. Wake up in the middle of the night and can't fall back asleep. You don't have to pray every second <clears throat> Excuse me, of every minute of every day. That's not what this is saying. When it uses, when the text uses words like without ceasing or at all times, <coughs> excuse me, sorry about that. When it uses phrases like that, what it's saying is it should be second nature to you. It should be something that you always do, that you 
do in the morning, that you do at night, that you do all the time. It's just a habit that you pray. You know, sometimes I pray because I'm, I'm working on something and, and you know, I don't, I don't say, I don't start with, with Father and I don't end with Jesus' name, right? You're in a crisis, how about just help me? Perfectly legitimate prayer. Help me. Two words. I love that prayer. I pray that prayer a lot. Help me. Because it's a habit. You need to make it a habit of going to your Lord. He wants you to come to Him. These are hindrances to prayer that will not exist in the kingdom. Because in the kingdom, what's happening in verse 24 of chapter 59, chapter 65, is that He answers instantaneously. He answers actually before the prayer is finished. Because all these hindrances that we're studying here will be gone. But we live this side of heaven. And so these hindrances are real. Colossians 4.2, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Devotion to prayer is only done if we have an active, intimate relationship with God. You don't talk to someone when you don't care about someone. The reason we don't go to God is because we don't care. You avoid someone when you're not interested in them. Come on, tell the truth, shame the devil. It's just true. The reason we don't go to God more often is because we're not that into Him. We're not that interested in Him. Confess the sin and go to Him. When you're interested in someone, you talk with them. Simple. Not praying according to God's will. That's the next hindrance. James 4.3 You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on yourselves. The right motive is God's glory. Oftentimes our prayers are not granted because they're based on our selfish appetites. We treat God as if He is a genie in a bottle. Gimme, 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 gimme. And when He doesn't gimme, 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 we're mad at God. See, we're okay with an omnipotent God. We're okay with a God that has the power to give us what we want. But we're not okay with a sovereign God. Right? A sovereign God says, I decide. I'm in charge. Not you, Alex. A sovereign God says, I want you to come to me, but your request will not be granted. Uh, I'm sovereign, God, not you. I mean, that's really what we're saying. Now, we're, we're not going to articulate it that way. But when we are angry with God, which is a real absurdity, shaking our little tiny fist at God, when we're angry with God because He doesn't give us what we want, it's a great sin. We must pray according to the will of God. Now, we can't pray according to the will of God unless we know the Word of God. That's why we make it... a uh, priority in this church to teach teach the Word of God, because you must know who God is. He's revealed Himself in 66 books. And so you can't function consistent with the will of God or pray consistent with the will of God unless you know His Word. Paul is a great example when it comes to prayer as it relates to the will of God. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 9 read like this, because of the surpassing greatness. This is Paul speaking, 
because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself, to keep him humble, in other words. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. We don't know what the thorn in the flesh was. We don't know what the messenger from Satan was that God sent to to be a thorn in the flesh for Paul. It doesn't matter. What matters for our study is that Paul's prayer on the topic that he was submitting to God was rejected. Once, twice, three times. God, this hurts, take it away. No. God, this hurts, take it away. No. God, this hurts, take it away. No. And in fact, I brought it to you, the Lord says. I sent that messenger from Satan. Here's the deal. God is sovereign even over the demons. And so God can use a demon to do his will without compromising his holiness, a God indeed. A God who is awesome indeed. And so what we see with respect to prayer is that Paul says, I get it. I got it. The pro- my problem is my will is not consistent with your will, God. So now I'm going to subject my will to your will. And now I'm going to boast in my weakness. The will of God is what is sovereign. And so it is, our require- is the requirement that God imposes on us that we submit to His will, that we make our will, because we do have a will, we're free to choose for Him or against Him. The requirement is that we submit our will to His will. This is what we must do in prayer. The next hindrance is not praying humbly. Second Chronicles 7.14 If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Now, although this is a promise that is specific to Israel and her land, we learn the principle of humility here. Prayer is an act of humility. Prayer is a dependence on God. So as much as I love my atheist lawyer friend, I have to say, you're wrong. You're wrong to be independent of God. We are called to be dependent on God. That's what faith is. That's what humility is. The world tells us that we're weak if we depend on God. And you should embrace dependence on God. That's a compliment. It's a compliment when the world says you're weak for depending on God. I mean, that's what Paul said. I boast in my weaknesses. It's a badge of honor to be weak in depending on God because then you're strong. You want to be power hungry? It's okay to be power hungry as long as it's God's power. And the only way to be power hungry with God's power, the only way to be sinlessly power hungry, to crave God's power is for you to be totally humble. It's a paradox, right? God calls Moses the most humble man on the earth. It's a paradox. You want power? Then be humble and submit to God and receive God's power. That's what Paul was teaching us in that prayer that we saw a moment ago. 
The world appeals to our pride, and you should resist it. Only in our foolishness do we conclude that relying on God is a sign of weakness. James 4.10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. God is opposed to the proud, James says, and he gives grace to the humble. Micah 6, 8, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does Yahweh require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. The concept of humility in prayer reminds me of that great weather prayer from December of 1944. You know what prayer I'm talking about? It's the prayer that George Patton issued to his soldiers, to his officers, and to his troops. Remember December of 1944, that Patton's army, his third army, is marching towards Nazi Germany, seeking to pierce the border of Germany and to conquer that wicked Nazi-ism that, was, that had dominated all of Europe. But they're stuck in the mud. Patton's army, his third army, the, the tanks, the troops, the GIs, they're all stuck in the mud. And so what Patton does, who is a Christian, is he summons his chaplain and he says, you draft me a weather prayer. Not a prayer for rain, but a prayer for no rain, right? A prayer that we would never pray in the Texas Hill Country. But he instructs his chaplain to draft him a weather prayer to stop the incessant rains because they're stuck in the mud and they can't advance The prayer went like this, Almighty and most merciful Father, we humbly beseech Thee of Thy great goodness to restrain these immoderate rains with which we have had to contend. Grant us fair weather for battle. Graciously hearken to us as soldiers who call upon Thee that armed with Thy power we may advance from victory to victory and crush the oppression and wickedness of our enemies and establish Thy justice among men and nations. Patton, in his humility, knew who the great sovereign was. The one who's even sovereign over the drops that come from the sky. So Patton has 250,000 copies of the prayer distributed to his officers and to his soldiers. And he orders them to pray. You know the rest of the story, right? The rains stop shortly thereafter. He makes his way to Bastogne to free the 101st Airborne, and then shortly thereafter they pierce the German border, and the rest is history. Can you imagine a U.S. general doing that today? They would have him court-martialed immediately and summarily. Maybe I'm overstating it just a little bit. You get the point. This is a humble prayer. George Patton understood the importance of humility in prayer. Most importantly, we must go to God in love. The hindrance that hinders our prayers, the tenth hindrance that we'll see this morning is not loving God. Psalm 91 verse 14, because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. Not loving God means being disinterested in God. We should love him because he first loved us. But you can't love someone that you don't know. That's why you have to study 
his revelation, what he has disclosed about himself, right? When a 17-year-old, when a 21-year-old is dating a girl, he's studying that girl, right? He studies her. He wants to know everything about her. He's interested in her. Are you interested in God? Do you study God? This is what we do if we love him. Because if you don't love him, eh, I'll come to you when I need something from you, God. Other than that, you stay out. You stay over there in the corner. And when I need something, I'll come to you. Other than that, stay away. Sadly, this is how many Christians operate, and therefore God does not answer their prayers. Actually, loving God is the most important of all the commandments. You remember the lawyer. I kind of cringe a little bit when I say this, but the lawyer who made the question to Jesus in Matthew 22, verses 36 through 38. When they say lawyer there, they mean a, a Pharisaic expert in the law. He said, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to Kim, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. That means with everything about you. Jesus didn't leave anything out. With all your soul, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. In some churches, it's all about the juice. You got to get all juiced up and all lathered up and we got to get, we got to get it, get it, get it, get it, get it. Right? We got to get all juiced up in the church. And doctrine, no, 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 no. We don't need any of that doctrine. And in other churches, it's all doctrine. I know all this doctrine. We need both. One is your heart and one is your mind. And Jesus says, I want them both. Is there anything wrong with emotion? No, God made emotion. But emotion must be subject to biblical truth. So you need everything about you to worship him, to love him. And this is why our prayers are not answered. Because we don't love him as we should. Our actions, our prayers are to reflect his love. We've seen, ten, we've seen ten hindrances of prayer this morning. All of these hindrances will be gone in the kingdom. Every single one of them. Because in the kingdom, prayers will be answered immediately. So these ten hindrances, when Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 24, it's actually God speaking through Isaiah, but when he says, I, when God says, I will answer before the prayer is, uh, is finished, we should ask, is that with res- which part of the kingdom is that with respect to? Is that with respect to the thousand-year reign, part of the kingdom, or is that with respect to the eternal phase of the kingdom? Well, at a minimum, it's with respect to the eternal phase of the kingdom because there's going to be zero sin, so there's nothing we're going to have to confess the first item on the screen. There's going to be zero sin. There's nothing we're going to have to repent, the second hindrance of sin. Our lives in the kingdom are going to be characterized by righteousness, third hindrance. All our prayers are going to be done in faith because disbelief is a sin, and there will be no sin in the kingdom, fourth hindrance to prayer. Fifth hindrance, our prayers will never be done in mindless rote because we're going to have this intimacy. God is going to live with you. Do you understand that? God is going to live in your presence forever. A place of unspeakable joy because anywhere God is, there is absolute joy and rejoicing. 
Number six, our prayers will be done with intensity and gratitude and thanksgiving for eternity. Number seven, the seventh hindrance will be gone. Our prayers will be continuous because perfect, eternal intimacy will always have us talking to our God. Will always, always have us communicating with the one who has given us this phenomenal blessing, not because we're so amazing, not because we earn it or deserve it, but because of the largesse of his grace that we have accepted through faith. The eighth hindrance, prayers will be consistent with God in eternity. We, are, we will be perfectly aligned with his will. In eternity, the ninth hindrance will be gone. Prayers will always be done in humility because arrogance is a sin and there will be no sin in the eternal kingdom. And number 10, we will love God forever and ever and ever. So no question, these 10 hindrances will be eliminated in the eternal phase of the kingdom. But I think to some extent, these 10 hindrances will be removed also in the thousand year reign. Not completely eliminated, but mostly eliminated eliminated. And I say that because Isaiah in chapter 11 verse 9 said that in the millennium that the knowledge of the Lord, the context there in, 11, in chapter 11 is, is the millennium, not the eternal phase of the kingdom. And in chapter 11 verse 9 he says that the, that the knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth. That's not academic knowledge. Remember the word knowledge in the Hebrew scriptures when a husband knows his wife, when a wife knows her husband, it's about intimacy. That's the way knowledge or knowing is used, the Hebrew word for knowing, yada. And this is, this, yada is the verb, this is the noun, yada. And so knowledge is describing this intimacy in the thousand-year reign, because that's the context of chapter 11. This intimacy between the people of the planet and God himself. Yet we also know that there will be some sin, very little, but some sin in the thousand-year reign. We know that because people are going to die, and death is a product of sin. They're going to live centuries, many, many centuries, but there will be some death, and we know that Christ will rule with a rod of iron. He'll rule with a rod of iron because there will be some sin, which he will deal with immediately. The point is this. The ten hindrances to prayer, all the hindrances, that's all I could fit on the screen. There are more. There are more. The hindrances to prayer will be completely removed in the eternal face of the kingdom and mostly removed in the thousand-year reign. Now, as we close this morning, let's look at verse 25 quickly. The wolf and the lamb will graze together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says Yahweh. Christ's reign will bring peace and prosperity and security and stability, not just to the humans, but to the animals, to the animal realm as well. Animal predators will no longer be meat eaters. They will be herbivorous. God will transform them to be herbivorous. This is what they were when God created them, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, you didn't have, before the fall in Genesis 3, you didn't have the wolf devour a lamb. Have you ever seen that? It is a brutal scene when a lion devours a gazelle. A brutal scene. But when Adam sinned, he handed over rulership 
over to the devil, which Jesus described as a murderer from the beginning, meaning the devil orchestrated the death of the first two human beings, Adam and Eve. Well, death and pain and suffering isn't just in the human realm. It's also in nature. It's also in the animal kingdom as well. Romans 8 explains how creation currently groans and waits eagerly for the curse to be undone. For the last Adam, the the, the language there in Romans 8 is for the redemption of us, for our redemption, which is to say the coming of Christ when we are resurrected. And then when the kingdom comes to this planet for a thousand years. And so what we have is the last Adam undoing what the first Adam did. And that undoing begins in the millennium. The last Adam undoes the curse, but he doesn't just undo the curse. He does the curse. Let me say that again. He undoes the curse. And at the same time, he does the curse. He he reverses the curse and he fulfills the curse. He does both at the same time. That's what we're seeing here in this verse. Look at this phrase in verse 25. Dust will be the serpent's food. That's part of the curse of Genesis 3 that has not yet been fulfilled. Remember the punishment that God issued after Adam sinned. First, God, well, God speaks to the serpent. God speaks to Adam. God speaks to Eve. When he's speaking to the serpent in Genesis 3.14, it says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. That's not what snakes eat today. Right? They slither along and dust gets in their mouth, to be sure. But snakes eat mammals. That's why you see an image of a, of a python in India. It's all bloated and they cut it open. They find a farmer inside that the python has strangled and then swallowed. Snakes eat mammals. They don't feed on dust. Not today. But they will then. Because the last Adam comes to fulfill all the promises of God. To undo the curse for us and to fulfill the curse with respect to the serpent itself, to snakes. Now, obviously, the last Adam conquers the devil and the serpent is the devil. We learned that in Revelation. But I think the context here in verse 25 is not the devil. It's, the, it's literal snakes. It is literal fulfillment of the Genesis three fourteen curse. The point that we've seen today is that in the kingdom, the last Adam will bring peace and security to the planet, and it will be a great time of prosperity and joy. First to the planet for a thousand years, then for eternity forever, and our intimacy with God will be so tight, such a one-to-one relationship. Obviously, we're not going to be God, but it's going to be so intimate that he will answer our prayers before we even finish them. That's going to be sweet. Sweet. Let's close in prayer. Father, we praise you. We praise you because you are an awesome God, a God to be feared and a God to be loved. We praise you because you have given us all these great promises and blessings to come. We've given some of them now, and we recognize that the the best is yet to come. 
We praise you for all these things. We thank you for these things. And we make this prayer in 